you but that last song and I had tears coming out of my eyes just thinking about the glory and the majesty of God and how awesome he is behold the lamb story of redemption written on his hands not our hands his hands the holes that were pierced in his hands the holes that pierced his feet the hole that pierced his side as we think about what he did for us you know and that goes right along with our theme as we've been going through the book of hebrews talking about how jesus is greater he is greater than the prophets he's greater than moses he's greater than the angels he's greater than all that we can fathom or understand and today we're going to talk about how he is greater because he is our great high priest he is the, the high priest that God has appointed. High priest that he appointed to bring atonement, to make atonement for us. Jesus, our great high priest. This week, Hebrews chapter 4 talked about Christ's superiority and his sinlessness as the high priest and his ability to, to sympathize with us and our weaknesses. And today we're going to look at the superiority of Christ in chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, in his appointment as a high priest. Not that he was voted in, not that he chose it, he was appointed to be our high priest. Because we're going to see that only he could truly do to bring the atonement that was needed. As opposed to human high priests, who continually went every year, had to go every year into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed himself once and for all. That was it. Just once. Every year, the human high priest would go in there, he'd make a sacrifice, and he would make offer a sacrifice for the whole nation of Israel and for himself. Jesus went one time, and his sacrifice was sufficient forever. And that's what's exciting. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Lion of Judah fighting on our behalf. So let's talk, if you would, you open your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 5. As we look through this this morning, we're going to look at a couple different things here in the first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to look first at what is a typical high priest? What is his character like? What was he like? What did he do? And then we're going to look at how Jesus was appointed as our high priest. How he was set apart and called by God. And then how through that calling, how he was not just a high priest that was good, he was the greatest high priest. So Hebrews chapter 5, read with me the first few verses here as we look at who is Jesus, who is, what was a typical high priest like? And then we'll read it and we'll go back and unpack it a little bit. So Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 says, For every high priest chosen from among men 
is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. As a pastor in a church, I can relate to this in many ways. We don't have priests in the Christian church. We do have pastors. And a pastor takes on some of this role. I don't go and make sacrifices for your sins. I do pray for your sins. And I can relate to you as your pastor because I have many, many sins in my own life as well. I struggle with them every single day. I'm not perfect. I know you think I am. And you lift me up on this pedestal and go, oh, Pastor David is so awesome. He's wonderful. He never sins. Don't ask Regina. Don't, definitely don't ask my kids. And don't ask my neighbors. I understand sin because I live in it every single day. I struggle with it every single day. The, high, the priests in, in the temple and the tabernacle of God struggled with those same sins. So when they came to make sacrifice for the people, they understood the struggle. And so they sympathized with the people. Look at the first couple of things here. It says, what is the typical high priest like? First of all, he's gentle. Look at verse 2. He says he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. That's us. The ignorant and the wayward. If somebody comes to me as your pastor, temptation is like, what are you doing, you idiot? Why don't you just walk away from that sin? What are you thinking? But then I have to turn around and look at myself in the mirror and go, look at you, idiot. What are you walking that way for? Right? So I deal gently with people. When they come to me and they're struggling with, with sins, or it's like, I'm the same way. You know, we, he dealt gently with those who came to him and needed counsel, needed advice. We understand that the grace of God covers us. But we also understand that sin is hard to overcome. It's a lifelong process, right? Every single day I go to God and say, God, it's me again. It's me again. It's me again. You know, it's like, ah, haven't I learned yet? I feel like God's wanting to say too, yeah, haven't you learned yet? <laughs> the priest, he was gentle with the people. Then he goes on and says, and since he himself is beset with weakness. The reason why he is gentle is because he also shows that solidarity with us. And then we all come together and we mourn together and we commiserate together that I know I've fallen into the same sins myself and we, we kind of understand the weaknesses of one another. We understand our struggles, right? That solidarity we have together as sinful people. Yeah, we come together on Sunday morning and we worship, we lift up God's name and we pray together and we have coffee together and we have spiritual donuts called vitamins together. There's, you know, there's no calories in those donuts, right? Because you're in church. Just want you to know that. So eat up while you're here. Because I don't, I don't, I don't need any more. Uh, but we have, we come together and we can commiserate together in solidarity together because we all struggle. The priest 
in the temple struggled with sin as well. They knew about human frailty. They knew about human weakness. And so God gave the people festivals and laws so that they might come together to be reminded of how great God is. And the priests led the people in these festivals. They led the people in the sacrifices to remind the people how great God is and how he wants to redeem them. He wants to draw them back to himself. And they were taught these laws and they were taught about these festivals and what the festivals meant from the time they were little. We get the Feast of Talents. We get this feast. We get this feast. We get this feast. We're getting together. It's like every month there was some feast to remind them of some spiritual lesson. Christmas is coming in just a few months, right? I know you've already seen, I was at Sam's Club this week, and I was like, oh my goodness, all the decorations are out. we got to go and buy our decorations now before somebody else gets them. You know, got to keep up with the Joneses. In my case, got to keep up with the Schwartzes because they have these awesome decorations in their house, and i got to do mine better than them. So Sam's has them out now. I'm going to head over to Sam's and buy my stuff. But we start early in our Christmas season. September 1st in our house, we start playing Christmas music. Don't hate on us. We don't play it every day, but we start playing Christmas music September 1st. And we, toward, as we get closer, we begin talking about what is the meaning of Christmas. We get to talking about it's not just about the presents, it's not just about the tree and the lights and our evil neighbors who have better decorations than us. It's about the meaning, the true meaning of Christmas. We begin teaching them from the time they were little, what is the meaning of Christmas? It's about Jesus. It's about the manger. It's about the angels who came. It's about the shepherds. It's about the wise men who came. It's about the redemption, the beginning of the end of Satan's dominion in this world. We begin teaching them those things. The Hebrews had the same thing. They had all these feasts and festivals, and every single one of them had a purpose and a meaning behind it to draw people's attention to the Most High God. And the priests led in those things. So to be an Israelite in the Old Testament and to be ignorant of God meant that they deliberately disregarded and forsook God's law. Did you get that? To be an Israelite in the Old Testament or even a Hebrew or a Jew now and to be ignorant of who God is even in 2020, 2020, 2021, 2022, this century, 21st century, to be ignorant of who God is as a Jew is to mean that they deliberately disregard and forsake God's law. There's no excuse. They were taught from the time they were little who God is. And see, and the high priest came along and identified with the ignorance and the waywardness of those people. Because he too is a finite human beset with weaknesses. Even though they disregarded it, the priest came along and could identify with them. He dealt gently with them and compassionately with their ignorant and wayward sinful selves because he understood the pressure as well as a finite, sinful human being. Secondly, or third and fourthly rather, 
the priest was obligated and called. Look at verse 3 and 4. It says, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, as he does for those of the people. He is obligated. He didn't have a choice. If he was set apart as the priest of God, the high priest of God, he was then obligated to make these sacrifices, to go on behalf of the people to God to make these sacrifices. He was obligated with the choice he made. And also, then he goes on in verse 4, it says, and no, no one takes his honor for himself, but only when he is called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron didn't have a choice in the matter. Back in Egypt, God told Moses, go bring your brother. He's going to be your mouthpiece. Aaron could go, oh, what? Moses like, shoot. It's off my shoulders now because I don't know, I don't know how to speak well. Right? That's what Moses, that was his excuse. So God said, fine. Go grab your brother Aaron. He knows how to speak well. What'd you feel if God told you, go grab your younger brother? <laughs> Let him do what you don't want to do. Now I'm the oldest in my family. If somebody said, go grab your younger brother, he does it better. I don't think so. But God told him, go grab your brother. Let him come and tell you, speak for you, speak for me. Because you're being stubborn. See, his position of the priest wasn't a volunteer position. It wasn't voted on by the congregation. And it wasn't sought after. Everybody understood what a deep, important position that was in the temple. Leading people in worship. Leading them in sacrifice. Leading them in the feasts and the festivals. To draw people into the presence of God. To teach them about how great and awesome God is. It wasn't something they sought out. And even though it was an exalted office, it was being marked by service and humility. Not every priest exhibited that. We see that in 1 Samuel when the, you had the, you had the, the priest there and his sons around doing stuff and leading people astray and living very bad lives. And God killed those two and raised up Samuel to be the prophet. He said, High Priest, because you didn't manage your sons, because you didn't teach them well, because they've gone off now and are living ungodly lives in my name, they're going to die. God took it, takes the office very seriously. He takes very seriously those who speak in his name as I do up here. I don't take it lightly that I have the opportunity and the privilege every Sunday to bring God's word to my church. It's an obligation I have and a joy that I, I get to experience, but I also understand the deep meaning that I don't take lightly. Some weeks, I can finish my message in the first part of the week, and I'm like, phew, now I got the rest of the, the end of the week to be able to kind of relax a little bit and ruminate on the message. Or like last night, nine o'clock at night, I'm like, finish it up. And Regina's like, are you not done yet? Said, no, I got, this is a tough one today and I'm not done yet. It's just all day long. She's watching Clean House on TV. We call it HGTV. We call it Clean House. All, and so she's back to look at the table. Are you not done yet? Are you not done yet? Not done yet. Not done yet. Not done yet. Our joke was this week, I'm going to finish my message at 2 p.m. on Sunday. So if I don't get through this, you'll know why. So the, the priest, his office was marked by service and humility. He was gentle, 
He showed solidarity to, with the people. He was obligated in his work, and he was called by God. All of those relate to Jesus as well. But we're going to see how Jesus was appointed not just to be like the finite human priest, but now we're going to see how he was appointed as our high priest, the infinite high priest. Look at verse 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. It says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You ever wonder what that means? The order of Melchizedek? This guy is only mentioned a couple times in Scripture. One of them is here. He appears on the scene historically. What, who is this dude? Why is he important? He's not even Jewish. He's not of the line of Abraham. Who is this guy? Look in Genesis chapter 14. Let's read about when he first comes off the scene here. Genesis chapter 14. Verse 17 through 20. It says, After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Tomad Abraham. Went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba. This is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram this by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's the first mention of this guy, Melchizedek, whose name literally means king of righteousness. This guy was not a Jew. He was not of the line of Abraham. And God, remember, led Abraham out of, the, out of Iraq into the Middle East, into what is modern-day Israel, Canaan there, and said, all that you see, I'm going to bless you. This will be your land. This will be land for your people. This will be, if you can count the number of sand on the seashore, that's how many people you have. The kids descendants you have. If you can count the stars in the heavens, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And here this pagan, Gentile king comes up to him, and scripture calls him a priest of the God most high. You know what that, that kind of excites me a little bit? Because here it lets me know that God was not just working with Abraham. He was not just working in the lives of Abraham of the of Ur of the Chaldeans. God was working in other people's lives as well. And if people were willing to look and say, at all of the creation, all of nature out there and say, I know there's a God out there. Reveal yourself to me. Obviously, Melchizedek, in some point in his life, had turned and committed his life to following the God Most High. How God revealed himself to him, I have no idea. I don't know. But at some point, God had revealed himself to Melchizedek and appointed him as high priest, as a priest for his for worship of himself. 
in the city of Salem, which is now we call Jerusalem, a city of peace. Shalom. Here in this account, the king of righteousness, after Abraham had gone to help rescue Lot, his, his nephew from some kings that had attacked and taken Lot captive. And so he joined with the king of Sodom and the king of Salem and a couple others. And they went and defeated those evil kings, got Lot back out of prison. So the king of Sodom comes up and the king of Salem comes up and approaches him. And look at what, the, look at what Melchizedek does. He does something that is not kingly. And he could have stood there. I'm the king. I've got my bodyguards. I've got my servant. Yet he brought the bread and the wine to the feast himself, and he served Abraham. Abraham didn't own the land that he was living in. He was tending the land, and he probably got permission to have his sheep and his goats in that land. Probably had to pay taxes at some point to those kings, or fealty to those kings. But he wasn't expected or required to go do battle. They came and said, hey, we need to go Rescue your nephew. Come join us. So the king of Salem comes up, this pagan Gentile king who's called out and declared as being the priest of God Most High. And he offers a blessing over Abraham. He says, Abraham, you're blessed by God Most High, the creator of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who has handed his enemies, handed over your enemies to you recognizing that God's hand was on Abraham. So what does Abraham do? He scoops up and gives Melchizedek one-tenth of all of his possessions. Notice the first time that the tenth or the tithe is mentioned in Scripture as the tithe, as, as an amount. Prior to that, people had made offerings, they made sacrifices, but there was never an amount given. So when people tell me, well, the tithe is not mentioned in the, outside the law, well, it, this is the law wasn't even given yet. The law had not even been, Moses was not even on the scene. God gave Moses the law down the road and talked about the tent and talked about all these sacrifices and the offerings that people need to make. And here you have Abraham giving a tent of all of the adult that he owned to the king as an offering to God. Not just as a tribute, but he gave it as an offering and a sacrifice to God. It says Abraham gave him a tent of everything. Not just a tent of the spoils. He recognized that Abraham recognized that God had blessed him. God had blessed his flocks. He blessed his herds. He blessed him with servants. He blessed him with all kinds of wealth. And so in return for that, blessings of God, he said, here's the priest of God. I want to make an offering to Jehovah. I want to make an offering to the Most High God as an act of love and worship. So when we give our tithes and offerings at the end of service, we don't do it out of obligation. We don't do it out of a sense of duty or a sense of, oh man, I've got to whip out my wallet and pull out a little. I give joyfully out of what God has blessed me and my family. He's given me the opportunity to earn an income. He's given me an opportunity to remain healthy. He's given me an opportunity to be blessed by so many things around us. How can I not give back to God? 
And that's the same way Abram viewed it as well. He says, you're the priest? Let me lay it on you, dude. Let me, let me give you as much as I can. I want to give you a tenth because I love God and God has blessed me. So that's the historical account. When, when, because it kind of comes on the scene for the first time, right? Let's look at the prophetic account. Psalm 110. Read with me in Psalm 110. This is Psalm of David, a messianic psalm, a prophetic psalm, talking about the coming Messiah. Only seven verses long, pretty short, but listen to the words. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments, from the womb in the morning, and the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn it will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You just heard about that guy, right? The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his hand. This passage right here, talking about the Messiah, the future Messiah to come, Jesus will come and be, he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. First of all, take, I want you to look at something. In, in scripture there, the very first verse, it says, the Lord says to my Lord, literally when in your Bible, I don't know if you know this, in your Bible, when you see the word Lord, and all four word letters are capitalized, capital L-O-R-D. That literally is the name of God. The Jews would not write the complete name of God. They would, they would say Jehovah, but they thought it was going against, it was disrespect to God to write out his name. So they would write out all of his, it's literally Yahweh. The word for Yahweh. The other word for Lord, it's capital L with a little O-R-D. Literally, in that, in, this, in that verse, is master or sovereign. We see that also, we see the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the lord of lords. He's the lord, he's our master and our sovereign. He is Jehovah God, the master and sovereign of all around us. The king of kings and the lord of lords. And then down in verse five, you see that again. It says the Lord is at your right hand. That's another word for God that's Adonai. Adonai, the Most High God. So there's three different words here. In English, it's all the same word. But in the Jewish and Hebrew, it's three different, very specific meanings, very specific understandings of who the psalmist is talking about. He says here, to the Lord says to my Lord, come sit at the right hand, and I'll place your enemies as a footstool. Jesus literally sits at the right hand of God in heaven. And all of his enemies are going to be a footstool for him to hang out. He, all of his enemies are going, to, are going to be conquered. It's already been written, right? We have already know the end of the story. If you read through Revelation, we know the end of the story. We're already reading the credits. Like when you watch a movie, and the end you got the credits to go, the credits to go, the credits to go on for 10 or 15, 20 minutes. 
after the movie's over. And now we watch them because we want to see that secret, that special little extra scene that we know the director stuck in there somewhere. The credits have already been done. There's no extra scene. Once the, once the story's done, it's done. And the enemies of God will be laid out there as a footstool for God to rest his feet on. That's the picture he puts in our mind. That's who this, that's who the Messiah is. Ultimately overpowering and overcoming all of his enemies. He sits at the right hand as the most important place. The Son sits at the right hand of the Father, the most important place, wielding the power, right? Talks about the scepter. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. He is wielding the power to overcome sin. He wields the power to redeem mankind. He wields the power to atone for man's sins. That's our God. See, and as a priest, this Messiah is different from the purely finite human priests who ultimately, ultimately just die. And then another priest has to come along to make more sacrifices. Jesus, it says here, serves as a priest forever. Forever. After the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is our high priest forever. Never dying. He died and rose again. He is our high priest forever. Make atonement for us once. His priesthood knows no end. So what does that mean then? And me, our priest after the order or after the pattern of Melchizedek? Because Melchizedek is just on the scene for such a short time, right? And I've kind of always struggled with this. What does that mean? But I've always I've been a lazy theologian. Just pushed it off. Just kicked the can down the road. I'll get to that one day. Until God told me to preach through the book of Hebrews, and now I have to deal with it, right? Thanks, God. <laughs> no more pushing it off down the road. What does it mean to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek? It part of, partially means that Jesus' priesthood, like Melchizedek's, was born of the sovereign purpose of God. He raised up Melchizedek to preach his name among these Gentile pagan people in the city of Salem. He raised up Melchizedek to come and bless Abraham, to let him know that God loves you. See, like Melchizedek, Jesus didn't take the honor of the priesthood upon himself. He was sovereignly appointed. He didn't just take it and said, I deserve this. He was appointed by God. And in, in this appointment and service as a high priest, he was exalted above all others. Jesus, the name above every name. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Philippians says. Every knee will bow. Those right now, every knee is going to bow. Whether you bow now while you're still alive or you bow after you die, after you die we're all going to stand before Jesus and bow our knees. I have chosen to bow my knee to Jesus now. To take a knee now in honor and subservience to Jesus because he is all my most high God. Everybody will take a knee at some point before Jesus. 
You either submit now or you submit later. You submit now, all the blessings of being a child of God come with it. You submit later, it's too late. You're going to go to a place that was not made for you. We talk about hell. Hell was not made for people. Hell was not made for humankind. Hell was made for Satan and his followers, his angels, his demons. Scripture tells us. But those who choose not to follow Jesus now choose to follow Satan into hell at some point in the future. I choose to follow him now. I choose to bow my knee now in submission and subservience to Jesus, to, to the Father now. Just as Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness, as the perfect king of righteousness, Jesus was able to make perfect atonement for all the sins of the people. As we mentioned earlier, when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and makes atonement, he has to go year after year after year after year after year after year. Jesus, the perfect king of righteousness, enters into that Holy of Holies one time to make perfect atonement for all of my sins and all of your sins. Never needed again. Just as one man's sin, through one man's sin, sin entered into the world, Adam, through one man's perfect sacrifice on the cross, the king of righteousness made atonement one time for all the sins of mankind. The second Adam, the Bible calls him. Never again do we have to fear if you are a child of God. So we see Jesus now as after the word of Melchizedek, he's been appointed, called into a job, called into service, but also he is the ultimate capital K, king of righteousness, capital K, capital R, the perfect king of righteousness working on our behalf. He was appointed to a supernatural task to make a sin sacrifice for God's people. Thirdly now, let's take a look at him as our perfect high priest. Our perfect high priest. Back in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 through 10. Jesus is our perfect high priest. It says, in the days of his flesh, in other words, while Jesus was still living in this world, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I hope you understand what that means by now, the last phrase. See, here in these last few verses that we're going to look at today, the author of Hebrews moves away from this theological framework he's been building about what is the priest, what is the high priest, what is Melchizedek, how does it apply to the Messiah? He moves away from that theological discussion into look at the physical life of Jesus and what Jesus physically is doing for us. Literally, let's look at verse 7. He says, In the days of his flesh, which points to the earthly ministry of Jesus, this Jesus, this Messiah, this priest in the flesh, totally without sin, and yet locked into the human 
emotions and frailty that we all experience. Willingly letting himself go through the frustration and all the emotional turmoil and all the struggle that we have to go through as well. This is what the author is telling us. In the days of his flesh, Jesus gives himself up to experience what we experience. The heartache, the grief, the hunger, the dependence, all these things that we, the worry that's on our shoulders and our minds, these are all things that Jesus allowed himself to experience as well. Not because he couldn't understand us, not because he couldn't relate to us, but so that we could relate to him. So that we in our human frailty, in our finite beings, we can know this God came and experienced what we went through. He understands me. Because our mind is going to try to play tricks on us. Oh, he's so perfect. There's no way he can know what I'm going through, right? No. Jesus knows exactly how you're feeling. You're frustrated, your anger, the heartbreak, the worry, the grief. Jesus understands what we're going through. And this says he offered up prayers and supplications. He cried out. Just like in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember the, the, the story of the Garden of Gethsemane just before he was arrested and taken to the cross. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. And he's praying with such intensity that blood appears on his forehead. It's not just sweat coming. Literally, it's just so intense in his prayer that it comes out in blood. Sweating drops of blood. So intense. The word Gethsemane, literally in, in, in Hebrew, literally is a rock that the Jews used to crush the olives to get their oil. So imagine, if you would, this big stone basin. And in that stone basin, the, Jew, the people would pour all their olives, those wonderful yummy olives, all around. And then the stone would be slowly moved around. The donkey would be on the outside, and as the donkey moved, with the beam attached to the stone, grinding the olives. And then when they get as much as they can, they scoop up all the olives, put them in bags, and they then take them over to, and they stack them up to against the wall, and they place this rock, which is the Gethsemane, and it's onto the bag of the already crushed olives, and it slowly, the weight of that rock slowly crushes those olives under the pressure and the weight. And as all of the oil is slowly pressed out of that olives, that Gethsemane crushes them to get every last bit. That is the pressure Jesus was under as he went to that garden of the, the Gethsemane. And he prayed because he knew the weight that was coming. He knew the pressure he was going to be under. He knew what he was getting ready to experience on the cross. Not the pain. We think about the floggings, right? Jesus is there on, on the pole and they're flogging him, whipping him with, with uh, the Roman scourge. They're punching him in the face and pulling out his beard. And he's hanging there on the cross 
That's what the pain we think about. Jesus was thinking of the, the slow press that was going to come from taking on our sins upon himself. Our high priest, the perfect, sinless high priest, was going to take upon himself the weight of the world, our sins upon his shoulders, slow pressed down as he hung there on the cross for six hours, taking upon himself the weight of my sins and your sins, that slow press. That's why he was crying out, understanding and knowing what was coming. I love in John chapter 17, he prays for his followers. What does he pray for them about? He prays, and it's a beautiful prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. He prays for his followers, he prays for the people that they would have unity. He prays that the glory of God be lifted up there in John chapter 17. God, let your name be made great. Let your name be exalted. Let your name be exalted. How? Through the people of God. Bring them to unity. Bring them to unity together so they might be of one mind and one heart to reaching their people, those around them, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let there not be infighting among them. Bring them to unity together. The followers of Jesus. So Jesus' prayer on, in the Gethsemane, Jesus' prayer for us to find unity, his prayer in the Gethsemane was literally a prayer to be raised from the grave. God, I'm getting ready to take these sins upon myself. Heavenly Father, I'm taking the sins upon myself. There's a guy born in 1969. He's going to be called David. He's going to have a hard time. He's going to be a sinful creature. But I'm going to take his sins on me. But as I do, let my sacrifice be enough to atone for his sins. And God delivered him. God delivered him from death. He brought him to the resurrection, raised him from the dead, letting us know that his sacrifice was enough. His sacrifice was enough for my sins, for your sins, for y'all's sins, for y'all's sins, for your sins, for your sins, even for their sins. His sin, his sacrifice was enough. My high priest. It says here that also that he was heard because of his reverence, right? His awe and his devotion and his submission. His prayer for us was heard and answered. God answered his prayer. Okay, your sacrifice will do it. Your sacrifice is enough. See, the son had totally submitted his will to the will of his father. Now, how that works, because the son is God and the father is God. My mind just gets blown sometimes thinking about this. But somehow, the son submitted his will to the will of the father, even though ultimately they're one being, they're God. And so he accepted the sacrifice for us. It says he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned to be obedient through the suffering, right? He didn't have to learn obedience because Jesus never disobeyed. 
He'd never been disobedient in his life. He didn't, didn't have to learn it like you and I. What this verse does is it highlights his humanity. It highlights his humanity. See, Jesus experienced the trials associated with human existence, just like you and I have to go through every single day. And he learned how to obey the Father through those trials. If you get tired of the trials in your life today, if you get tired of just like, God, can't things just be easier? I do. But we learn how to trust God through our trials. We learn how to have faith through our trials. We learn how to get through life and exalt God and glorify Him through the trials that we go through every single day. We get to experience God's blessings. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says it this way about Jesus. He says that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus suffered and bled and died on the cross, even death on the cross. With my sins pressing down on his shoulders, your sins pressing down on his shoulders, like a Gethsemane. Made perfect through suffering. What happens then? He became the source. I love this verse. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who would what? Obey him. He became our source of eternal life. And that's free for each and every one of us. Those here in the room right now, those watching online, Jesus' gift is free for each and every one of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life, right? Everlasting life. Jesus came and became the source of that life. He didn't have to be made perfect in the same sense that we normally think of it. He was already perfect. Through the suffering that he endured in the garden, from the rejection of his followers and the pain of the cross, he literally became the source of eternal life for each and every one of us. He suffered so we wouldn't have to. Praise God. He suffered so we would not have to. He took the Gethsemane upon himself so we would not have to experience the pressure and the crush of sin. And his suffering stands as the basis for our salvation, as the source for our salvation, as the founder of our salvation. And it's granted to all who obey him. So this priesthood of Jesus was made perfect for the suffering that he endured. Why did he suffer? For you and I. Why did he endure? For you and I. Did he have to? No. Could he just snap his fingers and all of our sins been done away with? Probably. But because he loved us so much while we were still in our sins, the Bible says. Christ died 
for us. But we're still in our sins. Christ died for us. That's our high priest. That's the perfect high priest who came and died and lived for us again. Made the perfect atonement for us. Have you bow your heads and close your eyes just for a minute? Maybe this morning as you're sitting here or watching online, maybe you never realized just to the extent what our high priest went through for us. Maybe this morning right where you're sitting, you just need to praise God. Lift up his name. Thank him for what he did. Confess to him our faults. And know and trust that he's going to take away those sins if we commit to follow him. Just right where you're at, offer up your thanks and your praise to our high priest. God, we are so blessed 